0: Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this muggy late spring day in Washington, D.C., where I promise no one is reading an embarrassing tell-all book about the inner workings of this podcast, except possibly Adam Wallner. I'm Alex Rorty, a political correspondent for McClatchy, and I am thrilled to be joined this week by David Acadneys, my fellow correspondent on the National Political Desk, who at this point, I presume, is reciting the names of potential vice presidential picks in his sleep. Dave, welcome.
1: Oh, you caught it, you caught my dream <laughs> of last night. So, you know, you're on it and happy almost summer.
0: Happy almost summer. we Right? At, I, I almost uh, said that this was a summer day, but I guess we have a, a few days yet. It still kind of feels like summer outside of DC right Yeah, now, unfortunately. And yeah. we're also, of course, happy to welcome back Francesca Chambers, a White House correspondent for McClatchy, who, like me, took some necessary time off recently. Francesca, I trust you have returned to DC fully charged.
2: Well, we went hiking. So it was actually not so much of a relaxing vacation, but you know what, it was oh, it was be really great no way. to be outside
0: yes. of my yes. home, which is yes. a
2: really low bar at this point.
0: <laughs> Any vacation is the moment you step outside your front door yes. right now, actually. So that 10 minute walk you take is actually a vacation by the, the current standards of the day. <laughs> Coming up, we are going to discuss the ever-evolving search for Joe Biden's running mate, a process that has seemingly shifted in the last month after George Floyd's death and the Black Lives Matter protest marches. I also just start to get twitchy when we stay away from the V-stakes for too long on this show. But first, the hits just keep coming for the White House. A president who trails Joe Biden by nine points in the national polls, according to a newly unveiled 538 polling average, is now the subject of a new, very unflattering book from his former national security advisor, John Bolton. Some of the highlights, just in case you missed them, Bolton alleges that Trump encouraged Chinese President Xi to help him win re election by buying American agricultural products, that the president did in fact link nearly half a billion dollars in aid to Ukraine to that country announcing an investigation into Joe Biden, and just generally described the president as a man driven by his self interest and winning re election at all costs, no matter the national interest. Trump and other White House officials have said that Bolton is a liar. And the DOJ, in fact, has tried to halt the publication of his book. My question for you though, Francesca, because this is a remarkable moment for a former national security advisor five months before an election to publish a book like this. I think there's a natural question with all things though, with Trump is, does this really matter politically? Is this going to to hurt him with any voters? Is this gonna produce the kind of negative coverage that some persuadable voters already on the fence about 2020 Are gonna be pushed toward Joe Biden. I don't think that anyone would suggest that this book or anything else a former Trump administration official says would single-handedly take down the White House, right? Let's just stipulate that up front. You know, this isn't the death of President Trump's reelection campaign. However, do you think that that this book combined, say, with statements from former Defense Secretary James Mattis, who said that Trump was a threat to the Constitution, does this add some real fuel to an already burning fire?
2: Well, it's certainly not helpful to his reelection, but at the same Mm. time, if you consider the 30,000 foot challenges that America's facing currently between COVID-19 and protests and police aggression, violence, that sort of thing, there are so many other things right now that have the potential, right, to further dent the president's approval rating and his matchup against Joe Biden. And so I would just stipulate that. At the same time, a lot of what was written in the book really just confirms what many people who have been covering the White House for years have written about in other shapes and form, not the specific allegations about these specific conversations, but again, like the broader themes, right? That the President Trump equates his reelection with the success and prosperity of America. He's been doing that. We've seen him do that based on his own words. And at the same time, I would also say the Democrats are also equating Donald Trump's re-election with the success and prosperity of America, saying that if he's not kicked out of office, right, like that, that there are all these terrible things will happen. So some of these themes are things that have been covered extensively, including the theme that President Trump likes authoritarian regimes, that he's been in awe of some of these authoritarian leaders and wishes that he could have the same powers that they do. And I think just taking away from the specific instances that Bolton laid out, like about asking Xi Jinping for help with the election, that he touches on many of those same themes. So coming back to your original point, it doesn't reveal a ton that was new about Donald Trump.
0: Well, there are a couple ways that I see this. I mean, first off, it's, it's hard to remember an administration that has had as many former top ranking officials come out and in some way be critical of the, the current administration. I'm thinking back to the past presidencies. I mean, you had a, a little bit with Leon Panetta, who at one point was a chief of staff, held a bunch of different top jobs in the Obama administration. He had some criticisms of the way that Obama managed his White House in his own memoirs, but it wasn't anything like we've seen. This where you write an entire book that's basically an oppo dump on, on President Trump. Dave, the, the danger would seem to me what I would worry about if I were a Trump supporter, that you have so many voters who are already looking at a nation in crisis and wondering if President Trump is the right person to lead it, because he himself seems to create so much chaos. If you have former administration officials in in a book that is going to get just wall-to-wall coverage, basically saying that, saying that the White House was chaos, saying that things were done the way that they shouldn't have been done, that just seems to be just a little bit extra confirmation that things aren't right in the White House and that that's where the danger is when you kind of put it up against the tapestry of everything else that's going on right now.
1: But if you weren't convinced by the impeachment trial that Donald Trump was willing to, you know, compromise the country for his own political gain, then I don't know if one more book, or frankly, two more books, or three more books before November Whole is gonna change your mind. There will be a library of books, I'm sure. Especially if he loses, then everyone is gonna have a book to write in this administration. But he's still at about 41, 42%. That's that's you know, support across the country. It's, it's a pretty bad place for an incumbent president to be, but I think the events that are more shaping his reelection are the response to the coronavirus, an economy that is now in recession, in depression, however you want to characterize it, and frankly, a nation that is dealing with racial unrest and is getting more sick of the division and is looking for healing every day. now. Bolton is going to drive news coverage probably through the next week as it rolls out officially on Tuesday. There'll be more snippets, more interviews. It contributes to the bad information flow. As Francesca said, it is not helpful Mm -hmm. to his reelection campaign. I mean, when when was the last good day Donald Trump has had? Like really good day. I mean, I was I was trying to think about that. Maybe but, the unemployment you know, numbers.
0: Maybe not being quite as bad. that. Maybe the unemployment numbers. I mean, thirteen point three on. To your point, thirteen point three percent unemployment was a good news yeah. day for the for the Trump right. administration. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Exactly.
1: I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair point. But you know, it's it's pretty much been bad information flow. Bad information though. This is another layer of it on top of that he's now on the defensive. But if you're a Trump supporter you can cast aspersions about Bolton, right? This guy wanted to go to war. We couldn't really even tr- ever trust him. He was a Bush guy. I mean, you you, you see the arguments that have already been, been coming out. And I think like Trump's 39 to 42% holds. I don't think that necessarily changes it. And I don't think that come October, or November, we will say that the Bolton book <laughs> was the most pivotal point in the election. Could be wrong, but- I doubt that this will be the biggest story when we write the history of 2020.
0: Sure, I think it is nothing more than a footnote, and in part because of some of the criticism that John Bolton has received from Democrats, right? I mean, there are, right. I, most of the response that I saw from Democrats yesterday, they were a long ways from thanking John Bolton. People were furious at him, that he didn't try to actually do anything in the moments that he describes, or at least testify before Congress, just trying to make a buck off his book, uh, is certainly what it looks like for a lot of Democrats. I guess. Francesca, I mean, I think Dave's right about everything he just said. Is it then just people who watch the White House, whether we're reporters or pundits or other political analysts who feel differently? Because I think there was a sentiment after Mattis' op-ed, or whatever you want to say he wrote for The Atlantic, where he said that Donald Trump was a threat to the Constitution after he had cleared out protesters from Lafayette Square. It felt like there was a sentiment in Washington, at least, that this time was mm-hmm. different, that there was just... And, and it's not just Mattis speaking, right. right? And it's not just John Bolton's book. It's that you have all of these crises. You see Trump's approval ratings and certainly his head-to-heads with Joe Biden starting to slip precipitously. And then you have former top administration officials on top of that coming in and, and basically saying, vote for Joe Biden. And so, in so many words, that's that's what they're saying. Is that it then? Then it's just a sentiment... In Washington has changed, even if this doesn't really reverberate to the country at large.
2: But there's also, as you are saying, right, it's it's not just those two. It's Esper who's breaking with him. It's Millie who's breaking with him. And so that was what contributed to people saying, wow. But for a regular Trump supporter, as you talk about the the response to this, many of them had just said, oh, you know, these people outside the administration, they're disgruntled. You know, you had the White House today saying that everything that, that John Bolton is saying is debunked merely by the fact that he didn't say any of this stuff when he was in the administration. But an important point on this is that the White House isn't actually like line by line going through and saying, no, he never asked the Chinese for election help. Like they have not said that the president himself was on Hannity last night. And he did not deny that on Hannity. Their line has been that John Bolton leaked classified information, you know, in this book or published it. Okay, so for it to be something that's criminal, as they're alleging, then they're seemingly acknowledging that these things are true, that these things actually happened. And so they have since said that, you know, he's a liar and this book is, you know, fake and full of lies. That wasn't their original response (laughs) to the claims. And again, they have not categorically denied some of the more explosive allegations that we're hearing. And so if anything, I think that that could be damaging for them, that they're not denying that these things took place. But again, it will actually be up to Joe Biden, though, I think, to to capitalize on that and make that argument against Donald Trump. And whether he can do that successfully or not obviously remains to be seen.
0: Dave, let's take the discussion to a more specific place, because Rather than the focus on the sort of broad effect of this, I know how Democrats or a lot, I should say, Democratic operatives and Joe Biden's campaign respond to this book. It was all about China, China, China. We have talked about this, Dave, and before we have seen the Trump White House and his re-election campaign really start to go after Joe Biden on being soft on China. We have seen even a pre battle of sorts from Democrats about this. But I get the sense that for Democrats, the, the real political fallout from this in their mind, again, talking about democratic strategists working on the 2020 campaign, is that this weakens Trump's claim that he is tough on China, gives them some ammunition from that. Do you think in that specific way that there could be some real political fallout here in in 2020?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you make a really good point in that it neutralizes one of the mainline Trump attacks. That was the first advertising blitz, not only from the Trump campaign, but the super PAC that they launched a barrage of ads in battleground states in May, beginning in May and into June. It was Biden is the pawn of China. Biden cozy up to China so much so that he got a sweetheart deal for his son using his access to his father and his connections over there. Now that seems pretty hard for Trump to make. Now, that doesn't mean he won't do it and and that they'll try to do it. But even before this book, you know, it already showed that those ads were pretty ineffective. Trump's poll numbers were going down, obviously because of other events occurring, overriding events. But now the China argument seems much, much weaker. And I don't even know, you know, do you want to even talk about China now? Can you even make the argument if you're a Republican surrogate? For, for Trump and you're going on, on TV or on these online streams at night, I think they'll try, but it certainly at least neutralizes that argument for the time being for Democrats. And I think Republicans and the Trump campaign are going to have to go back to the drawing board. I mean, now I think what you're seeing just in what I've observed is they're going back to the the sleepy Joe, lost a step messaging. I mean, the Trump campaign had this really odd slash interesting online event with their communications director doing this investigation it was like a four minute, really nicely produced online package about investigating what's wrong with Joe Biden, all the odd statements he's made. And, you know, Biden has made some some odd statements. You know, I, I think there's evidence that he has lost a step. If you look at how he's responded in interviews, sometimes his energy level, sometimes he gets things confused. Trump campaign going back to that argument but overall they're still searching for an argument i think that's the point and nothing has stuck yet and they need sort of i think an outside event to change the conversation and their direction and all the events are are flowing against them right now
0: yeah i mean francesca is is it, based on your own conversations with the white house the re-election campaign do you think that there is even now as as we you know reach summer that the the trump campaign has any idea what it's main line of criticism is going to be against Joe Biden? Because to me, it has become one of the biggest stories of the 2020 election, their inability to find something that can break through against him.
2: Yeah. So they have been continuing to push this message, as Dave said, like, you know, Biden, he's a befuddled old man hiding in his basement, you know, like even as he was not just out giving speeches. So I'll just leave that there. But I want to talk about the polling as well for a second, because one of their biggest arguments against Joe Biden, is this whole idea that four years ago, Donald Trump, when he faced off against Hillary Clinton, the polling was really bad for him and he still won. So polls are fake and they're, you know, they're all liars, not real. And if you actually go back and look at the polling, as I did, you'll see something very different that was taking place in 2016 than what is taking place now. Those polls oftentimes did have Donald Trump winning by one or two or three points. There were times where Hillary Clinton was in the lead by that much. And she was sometimes up by double digits. That's totally true. But on election day, she had a plus 2.1 lead over him. And so you have to in the margin of error, the 3.5 percentage points plus or minus margin of error. That is not what you see taking place at all here. You've got, as you noted earlier, Joe Biden up by nearly nine points. You also have, if you look at the polling, it's been at least a month since Donald Trump was tied with him. Also, his approval rating, it's been about a month or more since the last poll that shows Donald Trump's approval rating above 50 percent or at 50 percent, rather, not underwater, so to speak. And so there is, you know, arguable evidence that in any poll, by the way, including polls from Fox News and other places, it's much harder for them to argue against that Donald Trump is losing beyond the margin of error to Joe Biden. So that suggests a serious problem with their messaging, with the candidate, however you want to look at it, that as you noted, they've really got to figure out how to solve. And they can argue all they want that, they, you know, the polls are wrong, but what if the polls aren't wrong? And what are they, you know? so So maybe think about that as a question.
0: You know, Politico, I think, published a smart piece yesterday questioning whether or not some of the state polls might be inaccurate again this year. And and look, I mean, there is a lot of public polling that's just bad. It's not biased in any direction. It's just bad public polling. And that is inevitably going to skew some of the results. That said, Francesca, to your point, look, the polling is much worse right now for Donald Trump than it was. It is. It's much worse in the year 2020 than it was for him in 2016 at this point. And then really, even in the last month, look, you know, he's in a dead heat in Iowa right now. That's all all I need to say. This is a state he won by nine points in 2016. And according to private and public polling, he's in a dead heat against Joe Biden. His his campaign's in a lot of trouble. Just dismissing the polls as inaccurate is is a little, I think, misguided at this point.
2: And by the way, Alex, I was referring to national polls since you're mentioning state polls. Yes. So I was referring to national polling. There's a separate Mm -hmm. argument to be made for state polling. But I just think for the listeners, I want to be really clear about the data I was using. Sorry, do you continue? Totally.
0: What wouldn't be misguided, I think, is a discussion of who Joe Biden is going to pick as his running mate in 2020. Uh, This is a discussion we've had on the podcast before and is a favorite parlor game of all kinds of politicos from both parties for a variety of political and substantive reasons. That said, I think that this process has changed since the last time we talked about it. I think the protest over George Floyd's murder and the accusations of racist police violence have really shaken up a vice presidential search that a couple months ago really would have included someone like Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, seen as one of the top tier candidates. I'm not sure if that's the case anymore with with Amy Klobuchar and there's some reporting suggesting that she no longer is in that top tier. Dave, there is a sense among a lot of Democratic activists that the party would like to pick an African-American woman, or at least a woman of color as Joe Biden's running mate, to help complement the ticket and also to respond to this moment. But I want to talk first about a story you wrote, because it's true that a lot of Democratic and liberal activists feel that way, but they're willing to make maybe one exception. Tell us more about that.
1: Just to lay the groundwork, I do think the odds are that if you're going to lay a bet, he does pick a black woman. I think that is still the smartest bet to make at this point. But as you know, a month can change a lot of things, as we've seen in the last month. And I think the overarching trend in the last month is that the options for Biden have significantly narrowed. You mentioned Amy Klobuchar, Gretchen Whitmer have had her own set of problems in Michigan that I think has decreased her chances. And then you've got to look to you know a small number of of black women that are available that are in elected positions that that could credibly take over the presidency if needed and there's some debate over that whether a mayor whether a congresswoman could do that but there is you know a, a senator one white senator that i think is still in the mix and maybe you could jot in as a number 2 or 3 pick and i think that is elizabeth warren and I talked to a bunch of African-American activists, some of them also progressive activists over the last week, and I just you know, picked this up in conversations that there is very different notable levels of support for her, whether it be full-fledged, I would like her, I would support her if she was on the ticket, to I wouldn't oppose her. One interesting anecdote that I found in my reporting about this is that when progressive or i should say a bunch of minority groups were trying to organize a petition around asking joe biden to pick a african american woman on the ticket some african american activists declined because they knew that would eliminate elizabeth warren and now look even warren allies believe that kamala harris still remains the front runner right now but if there are more events that unfold over the next month that really drilled down on criminal justice reform, Warren does have a certain amount of respect for the reforms that she laid out, for the time she put in, I guess, in speaking to African-American communities, African-American leaders about their issues. she is doing an amazing number of events over the last month with groups that have come out and, and said that they want a black woman for the vice presidency. There's still a considerable significant amount of respect And I don't think you can just, you know, put that to the side. I think there's an argument that she could do the most for Biden in marrying progressive support and black support. You know, there are still still considerable drawbacks, though. She is 70 years old. She turns 71 in a week. That may be too old. We know she is pretty, pretty significantly to the left of Joe Biden. That may not fit his definition of having a running mate that uh, he is totally in sync with. And then there's the issue of the Massachusetts Senate seat that she would have to give up. There would be a vacancy, a special election. We all remember Scott Brown, you know, it should be a democratic seat. It should be a safe special election, but we know special elections can get hairy. So there are definitely some drawbacks with Warren. I think even her allies, when I press them on it, they said, look, we still think Kamala is probably the sixty percent, but we're the forty percent. And they say, you know, Val Demings, Congresswoman from Florida, Keisha Bottoms from Atlanta, they're not ready and that they're floated, but but they haven't been through the national gauntlet and that nobody knows what it's like until you're in it. And at least Kamala and Warren have been through it. They've been through the scrums. They've had the scrutiny. They've had the long in-depth profiles written about them. Everything's been poked so that this vice presidential race will come down to one of these two. They're both senators. They're both compelling figures, different ideologically, different coasts different ages. But in the end that's the that's the calculation Biden Biden will have to make. The other names will be floated, but it was to the sense to me that those are going to be the two finalists. But, you know, a month can change a lot. So. <laughs>
0: a month has already changed uh, don't call a lot me to in, it, right? in in American <laughs> politics. Francesca, let's go with the idea that Joe Biden picks Elizabeth Warren as his running mate. That Dave just said, I mean, it's still very much in play. Uh would really be positively received by a lot of corners of the Democratic Party. How, though, does a Trump campaign, how, though, does the president himself respond to a a Warren selection? Because I just feel like I'm going to hear the word socialist an awful lot (laughs) if she's picked. Am am I on to something there?
2: I'm... I'm a little tepid about writing Donald Trump's playbook for him right now. Yeah, no, go ahead and but do
0: it, uh, Francesca. Go yeah. ahead and do it. That's all what right, the podcast right. is for.
2: Why not? It's Yeah, so. it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, right. I, yeah, totally. Like, she's a socialist. You know, Joe Biden isn't actually going to run his own government. Elizabeth Warren will be running it. And look at all these things that she's been pushing for with progressives. They're going to take away your guns. They're going to take away your Second Amendment rights. They're going to take away your country. I mean, you're going to hear just a real Repeat of all of that, but another thing that you'll hear when it comes to Elizabeth Warren is I do think that you would hear him bring back up the Native American scandal. I, I think, and especially in the context of Jeez. everything that we've had happening with minorities in this country right now, you know, I think that there would be some arguments that would be made related related to that about the you know. <laughs> that's why I said I don't know how much further down that road I want to go for Donald Trump. I'm sure he'll make his own argument just fine. But but you you know you can see how so, some of those things would. would come back into play, and he's been clear that he laid off of those, those things about uh, her Native American heritage, quote unquote, because she was already doing poorly in the polls at a certain point and didn't really see the point in going there, but he would certainly revive that if she were. I want to make another point, though, generally. Dave, you talked about the people who've been through the fires in the national campaigns, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And some of them, though, like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris did go through that process. And once they came out of it, right, there were all these articles you said that were assessing their candidacies, but most of them were assessing that they did a bad job that they like dad, bad campaigns. And that was a lot of the problem there. And so certainly within the Joe Biden apparatus, perhaps some of those issues would, would go away for them. but, But Elizabeth Warren, a big problem for her was, was defining who she was. And she really struggled with that. And so they would, they would need to take a look at that. And with Kamala Harris, there is always the question of the allegations that she made against Joe Biden that were, that were racial. I mean, outright racial allegations against Joe Biden and busing that they would really have to find a way to come to grips with. When it comes to this idea of who else there could be, you could make the argument from a qualification standpoint, as, as Kamala Harris seemingly did recently, that this is about who can win, not about who could step up if something random happened and they had to become president. Or, or someone who would what, you know, be president in four years if he's a one-term president. And, and one aspect of that is who has the time to campaign all day long? And regardless of what you think about you know, Keisha Lance Bottoms and some of these other folks, they have really time-intensive day jobs right now. And how they could step away and campaign aggressively like Joe Biden would need someone to do would be very, very difficult in this climate. And so perhaps even if someone is less qualified on paper, that might be someone who might be appealing to Joe Biden because they would have the kind of time to campaign.
0: So an interesting dynamic with Kamala Harris where everyone seems to agree that she is the front runner, but I don't necessarily see a whole lot of coverage of her right now, she is not quite, uh, she's not nearly as publicly out there campaigning for the job as I think we've seen some some other candidates. Dave, it would seem like, if we're trying to explain why most people think that Kamala Harris is, is going to be the pick, why she's the favorite, she just seems like the safe pick right now.
1: Yes, she's the Tim Kaine. We see how that worked out though.
0: She's the retrofitted, she's Tim Kaine 2.0 in, in some yeah. ways. Um, I mean, Francesca, you're right that it was not a great campaign. She struggled personally at times. But I think the analogy is people would say that she was still in the major leagues and some of these other candidates with all due respect to someone like Val Demings, they're like an A ball right. right now to make a minor league baseball analogy. And, and you just don't know what they're going to look like when you bring them up to the, the harsh spotlight of a presidential race. And, and Harris ideologically, again, she helps compliment Joe Biden within the party. It's a signal to a lot of Democrats who, Biden was not their first choice, which goes for the majority of Democrats actually. He gets it that he wants someone who is ideologically more simpatico with the other wing of the party. That's what it seems like, That that's the, the argument for Harris right now, particularly in light of a race where Biden is leading national polls by nine points. Just don't screw it up. Pick the safe right. pick like Kamala Harris.
2: <laughs> I'm just feeling contrarian today, Alex. <laughs> no, go for <laughs> it.
0: That's, like, yeah, that's what the show's for.
2: Yes. And you're absolutely right. Like he has to pick from a group of people, right there. He doesn't get to pick necessarily the perfect vice presidential running mate. He, there's a list and he's going to pick a name and he's got to pick the name that's either going to do the least amount of damage to his campaign or benefit it the most. And I say the least amount of damage, because as we're talking about these polls and everything, right, it's kind of on a glide path right now. The vice presidential candidate will be the next big choice in front of him and who he picks will really matter. And who he picks if it's, it's right, if it's like the wrong choice, is one of the few things at this point that could really screw it up for him. So I think that that's a big factor, too. Can I just say You're that right. I,
1: I, think there's <laughs> a, I think there's a difference between the perception of Kamala and the Warren campaigns within the Biden folks. I think there's the perception that Kamala ran a disastrous campaign, and that is the risk that she surrounded herself with. conflicting messages and conflicting messengers, and wasn't sure who she was for a while. Warren struggled a little bit with this, but I think overall Warren's campaign apparatus is highly respected. And the campaign she ran was highly respected. And that they didn't leak, that she can get on message if need be, that she'll be a loyal soldier. And that like the Warren campaign didn't have the drama. Kamala had the drama. And I've done some reporting on this. Her first Senate campaign had drama. She went through two campaign managers and finance people and people that didn't like working with her. So that's the risk. And the risk is also that Kamala will begin running for president as soon as she gets on the ticket. Whereas Warren like believes in the stuff and like believes in the policy and could really be helpful when Biden is going to be trying to pull a country out of a recession in January 2021 and would sort of be that policy nerd that you need That I mean, that's the pro Warren argument. I think, though, to some of your points earlier, tagging Warren as a liberal and too far left of the country is a risk. That's that's going to be the the drawback. Does she alienate that suburban white female voter that took a chance on Trump last time and is like, "Ooh, Warren's a little bit too much"? That's the risk. I think it's ideological and political, though. That is is what is being weighed between Kamala. And Warren.
2: And if the economy is the argument, as we always keep coming back to, to your point, Dave, she is quite progressive on that issue. But yeah. I think there's a real question in America right now as to what Americans do want in an economic recovery, right? And 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 people have been relatively happy with the idea that if they were jobless, that the government, you know, gave them checks. That's a very progressive point of view compared to what the Trump administration would like to pursue, right? Which is they want tax breaks for businesses and and all all sorts of things like that to help create jobs and, you know, what has traditionally been called trickle down economics, so to speak. And so so with a stark economic choice like that, people could lean a little bit more towards Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren.
1: Kamala Harris versus Elizabeth Warren could be a 2024 Democratic primary. I mean, not to look too far ahead, but no, like, no, look, if look, look one of them too far is ahead. Picked, the other one may be running and challenging because if Joe Biden doesn't run for a second term, I mean, I'm assuming like 13 different things now. But for the for the real <laughs> political nerds out there, you know, let's start talking about 2028. Right? Next
0: week on Beyond the Bubble, we're going to talk about the 2024 Democratic presidential primary. Stay tuned. business
2: <laughs> expensing.
0: <laughs> real quick and great stuff as always. Going to turn to my favorite segment every week where Francesca and Dave are going to tell us something new, fresh, or original out of their reporting notebook. Dave, you're up first.
1: So we saw this week the Biden campaign launched their first round of TV ads and digital ads in battleground states. They did the first six states, $15 million. This is sort of the the official foray to the general election. I am told what's coming next, because I've sort of been asking about this for weeks now, is pinpointing state directors That are going to be charged with winning these states. Jen O'Malley-Dillon, the campaign manager, sort of took over from Greg Schultz uh, as the campaign manager. It's taken a little while to get organized. The pandemic has made it tougher, but I'm told those state directors are coming. And to no surprise, the first rollout is going to be in those states, the six that we always talk about, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona. And then, We will see some of the other states where the sort of second tier states. So I'm told that that is coming in the next two to three weeks.
0: Dave, great stuff. Francesca, what do you got?
2: You inspired me. I'm going to switch my topic, actually. You talked about what's a good news day for Donald Trump. And he's hoping to have a good news day on Saturday when he has this rally in Tulsa. He has been itching to get back out on the campaign trail. It's finally going to come for him. And so that's what they're hoping for. It could be followed by a bad news day, depending on what happens on coronavirus in the state of Oklahoma afterwards, but they expect that to be a good news day. So he has been plotting rallies as well in states like North Carolina and Florida, two states that have had recent coronavirus spikes. And yesterday I asked the White House press secretary during the briefing who told the president it was safe to have rallies there. She didn't really answer that question specifically on who said that would be safe, but she did make the argument that they see embers of coronavirus there and that they wouldn't have rallies in those states until they are deemed safe. So they haven't given us dates for those rallies, but it it does show at least that they're cognizant of the fact that maybe not such a good idea to have uh, rallies in some of those states right now. And I'll be curious uh, to see where those rallies are and when they are. And if Donald Trump, after this Tulsa rally, given the controversy around it, maybe, uh you know, puts the brakes on this a little bit.
0: Mine, just just real quick, I alluded to this earlier on the show, but in talking with one Republican group that is doing polling in some presidential battleground states, just confirmation that the Des Moines Register poll that showed Donald Trump, I think up a point on on Joe Biden, uh, just a single point, again, in a state he won by nine points. That's no fluke. Their own polling shows the same thing where it is effectively a dead heat in that state. Now, interestingly, the same group sees Trump's numbers as better in North Carolina and Arizona, two key battlegrounds where some of the polling recently has been pretty uh, dire for Donald Trump, I think particularly in Arizona. They see it better. There are their own polling paints a more positive picture there for Trump, but the overall message from this group and the overall feeling there is that Trump's standing really has deteriorated over the last couple of months. And they are certainly concerned about his ability to win re-election. So just some small confirmation here. It's not just the public polls in these individual states that are showing Trump's slip. You're seeing it in some of the private surveys as well. Okay. Francesca and Dave, really great job today. Thank you guys both so much for coming on the show.
1: Happy weekend. Can't wait to be back.
0: We have so much more. We have so, so much more over the next (laughs) four and a half months. I want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and our executive producer, David Coburn. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.